Hello, and welcome. I'm Adrienne Barbeau, actress, author, and star of The Fog, Creepshow, and Swamp Thing. And this is She Kills, a Shudder original podcast where we sit down and discuss all of the things we love about the genre that has given women some of the most iconic roles in film history. With the light from our phones replacing the light of a campfire, tech horror films are the modern iteration of classic scary campfire stories, reflective of a cultural and technological shift where the big bad crawls out of our screens to rack up a body count as if they are going viral. The best part of social media for me is the immediate communication it offers with fans, friends, and family. Knowing that a story is being shared around the world is truly incredible. But in the wrong hands, that technology can bring disastrous results that turn from truly incredible to truly horrifying. Today, professor and editor-in-chief of Blumhouse.com, Rebecca McKendry, and her friend, actress and author, Bria Grant, star of Halloween 2 and Dexter, put down their phones to discuss tech horror and the everyday terrors lurking online. My name is Bria Grant. I am an actress and a filmmaker. Um, people may know me from Dexter or Heroes, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, and a number of horror films. And I directed a movie called Best Friends Forever, which is an apocalyptic road trip movie. I am Rebecca McKendry. I am a filmmaker. I am a professor at the University of Southern California in the School of Cinematic Arts. And I am a co-host of the Shockwaves podcast on the Blumhouse Network. The horror genre for me has always been there. Um, it's just kind of like my home. Um, straight out of college, I, I started working um, for Fangoria Entertainment, and uh, I was like 22 at the time, and uh, started as an intern. And for me, horror has just been always where I found myself um, as a fan, as a viewer, and now as a professional, and even now that I'm getting into my own filmmaking career, it's just where I want to be and where I belong and where um, things make sense to me. And I just, I love it. What about as a kid? Oh, my gosh, yeah, as a kid. <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, it was um, – my parents used it as an incentive. Um, so they started out like kind of, you know, oh, you shouldn't watch that type of stuff. My parents uh, were kind of and still are ex-hippies, and so they were never like really like, you know, you're not allowed. Um, I don't think I was ever told I, you're not allowed except for like extreme circumstances. Um, and after my parents realized how much I loved scary movies, they started using them as incentive. And so the rule in the house was, as long as I made straight A's, I could watch whatever I wanted. So what about you, Bria? Um, yeah, I mean, I so I have an older brother, which always, I think, helps with making you get into stuff early. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would watch stuff with him that I was entirely too young for. The, the first movie I remember really scaring me was Tremors, which now I know is not mm -hmm. scary. Um, but at the time, I remember being scared and being scared to walk to my bedroom because I was like, what if those tremors come out of the floor and get me? Wow. I was so scared. Um, and But I loved, at that time, there were quite a few genre things on TV, like Are You Afraid of the Dark oh, yeah. was on. There's just like a lot of things that really were creepy for kids. And then once I became an actress... I've always been into comic books. I've always been into more genre-y things, especially science fiction. And 
I luck of the draw I got cast on Heroes. I would love to be like somehow I manifested that, but I think it's luck. Um, I got cast on Heroes and then got an offer, auditioned and got the offer to be in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was like, I think as an actress, you sort of have a choice. Do you lean into that horror stuff, horror genre, mm-hmm. or do you go, no, that was my only horror movie. I'm going to be Jennifer Aniston or, yeah. or whatever. Um, and for me, it's very hard for me to get excited about acting in a drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I don't know what it is. I think it's it's partially because that's what I want to view in my spare time. And I like both the escapism that the genre provides, but also sort of the allegories that I think genre filmmaking is able to tell, Mm -hmm. the stories that it's able to tell about um, bigger issues, but not forcing them down your throat. We asked Bria and Rebecca if they see the success of films like Unfriended and Paranormal Activity heralding tech horror as the next subgenre to hit it big. Tech horror isn't anything new, even though that we um, are seeing kind of a surplus of it now. This, I mean, we saw a surplus of it in the 80s. We saw a surplus of it, um, you know, in the 90s as well. And it just kind of depends on what technology is becoming commonplace. So like in the 80s, we see stuff about videotapes coming out with like Videodrome being the most obvious one. Um, and even as computers started becoming more commonplace in the 80s, we we saw things like evil speak um, coming out. And there were a bunch of them where um, it's all about terrors coming through the Internet. And so pretty much any time that there is a new technology, someone will, one, find a way to put porn on that technology. <laughs> and two, someone will write a horror story about that technology corrupting society or potentially being haunted. Um, that said, I love tech horror. It's some of my favorite. Um, and I, I'm always so there, there's good tech horror. And then there's some that I'm like, eh. but some of it I just find so important and speaking so loudly about things that we're doing with society. Um, like, uh, you know, we have the American version of Pulse, but the um, film that it's based on Cairo, Cairo, which I probably saying wrong was amazing and I consider that to be one of the most important films of the year because it wasn't it was about technology and kind of the idea of technology turning us into ghosts but far larger than that it was about depression um, and spoke so strongly about depression and reaching out to people who may not be able to help themselves at that time and had just so many important issues to it um, I think that Videodrome when it came out though it on the surface was just about a haunted um, VHS tape and, you know, the idea of video um, capturing your image forever, even after you're dead, um, which we're still seeing a lot of. I think that Videodrome was speaking a lot more about the idea of voyeurism, the idea of the eternal image, um, the idea of can you create someone's image even if they aren't part of it or can you create lasting images or the idea of kind of the falsity of image um, and that image is not something that's necessarily true, which I think is now still even more important decades later on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of creating an image that kind of outlasts you and is beyond you. So I, I love tech horror. I mean, I think it's interesting and and difficult for filmmakers because if you make a tech horror movie – 
it basically immediately becomes dated. Yep. Right? It, there, there's a timestamp on it. I know that um, at USC, I remember with most of my classes, I begin by asking my students, like, what, is some, what are some of their favorite films? Because I'll usually try to cater the classes to their tastes. And I remember um, when I was teaching summer session, I had... At least half the class told me that they were in love with this one particular movie, um, Nerve, um, which was – it's a tech horror film. Hmm. Um, and I'll say horror loosely. It's kind of – it gets into more thriller, but they were just in love with Nerve. And so I watched it because I wanted to see what they were so excited about. And it is totally um, an app affecting your real life where the app is daring you to do stuff and people watch and as you complete tasks you actually get paid for them and i will say that they connected far more with that than a lot of other films um that i kind of would put in the text area and also in my when i teach a horror history class i usually will show two cronenberg films because i find the difference to be so interesting i'll show Videodrome and Existence. Videodrome being incredibly dated, and even though that Existence has been out for like a decade or more now, it's something that we're still seeing. It's about virtual technology video games. And my students find Existence to be such a better film than Videodrome, not because it's better made or it's got more allegorical or meaning to it, but because they relate with it more. And so I will say my my 18-year-old freshman completely love Existence more than any of the other films I show them in the semester. You know what's funny? Um, is that an iPhone 5? Because that has been out for a long time. <laughs> I've also discovered in filmmaking that people have had to um, include, I'll call them, little exposition writers in scripts because of technology now. Like back in the 80s, the idea of getting lost in the woods and having no one to reach out to was just the way it was if you were actually lost in the woods. But now, as soon as you put people into an isolated situation, you're in a broken down car, you're trapped in the woods, you're trapped in the creepy cabin and can't get out. You have to find some way to get rid of the phone. And so it's become interesting to kind of watch how they handle this in each individual film. Are you just out of service, in which case you have to have an area of exposition where you establish that no one can have service? Do their phones get broken? Why doesn't Todd have his phone? Does Sheila have it? And so the idea of communication or eliminating it has become something that we have to establish in horror films just to move forward. Or you have to play with the idea of the cell phone and what if he does try to reach Sheila? Well, why doesn't he just call the cops? And so it's become this new kind of um, hurdle that you have to get over in order to establish isolation. I feel like there are entirely too many conversations about that, though. I am on so many movies where people are like are so concerned about the they're like, you got to ha- make sure the phone. And I'm like, this is if you're watching the movie like you one line, one line. We need one line to get rid of this phone. Like, yeah. let's not focus on the phone. I've seen so many movies in which they like do a shot of the phone being thrown out mm-hmm. the window or left behind. And I'm like, we got it. The phone's left. behind. We got it. Dropped we understand. Water the not run there. over by a car. Yeah, we, yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, I can't. I, I like I think the thing is, we're already suspending our imagine our, suspending disbelief. By going into a movie theater, we already know we're in a false situation. Mm -hmm. You don't have to play up the phone thing as much. I understand it is important. And it in movies that do it well, I'm very impressed by. I'm yeah. like, oh no, that's cool. Like they they made a really cool choice, like Cabin in the Woods or something mm-hmm. like that. But I but there's a lot of movies where I'm like, that is overplayed. Mm-hmm. The one thing that horror does really well is it can take something like that and just take it to the nth degree so mm-hmm. we can see where it, we aren't seeing like one person just deal with 
oh, Instagram is hurting my feelings. We see Instagram is literally killing me, Mm -hmm. which I think is an interesting way to look at something that obviously teen girls are dealing with or 37-year-old women, as the case may be. (laughs) But I think what what horror can provide is a way to explore these Mm -hmm. new kind of technologies. You know, horror can take something that's new and obviously... As, like, maybe older generations are scared of it, but younger generations are not, and sort of explore the combination of those two <laughs> two experiences mm-hmm. and just take it to some some huge conclusion that is not necessarily happening in real life, but I think is interesting to explore because anytime there is anything new, like you said, in the 80s or anything like that, I think it is interesting. And it's something we should be talking about how it affects us. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and I think horror is probably the best way to do that kind of stuff, personally. Absolutely. Adaptations of urban legends birthed online, like Slenderman, have given rise to this evolution of the classic spooky stories. So what role does the Internet play in helping to create fresher ideas? I absolutely love creepypastas. I love kind of what the Internet has done with horror stories Um, because it really does feel to me like, well, one, they're community written because it's always like, you know, one person starts the thread um, looking at the original creepypasta threads on Reddit. Like one person will start it and then somebody else will add to it and then somebody else will doctor a photo and send that in with it. And, you know, it's kind of it builds on itself and it kind of creates this universe that's driven by a lot of people, um, which is why they are also notorious notoriously hard to convert into films because when you are looking at 30 different authors and this kind of ever spiraling folk tale, it's hard to pin down who the original person with the idea was um, for rights issues, which is why it's always difficult um, to take creepypasta ideas and convert them into media. That aside, um, I absolutely love it. This is like modern day camp stories for me. It's the idea of the hook for the hand and how you know a different version than I do. And, you know, everyone has kind of a different take on it. Um, and I think that that's kind of like, you know, where it is. And it's also the idea of the urban legend, the questionable truth. Like when I was a kid, I firmly believed that there were snakes in ball pits because my parents had told me that. And obviously it was true. Um, and the idea that, you know, that these things can be developed as half-truths where we're questioning if it's real or not. Some of them have even been spun into news stories, and some of it I consider to now be, um, you know, that they will actually cause public scares because of it um, and that it becomes kind of a more sensationalized thing. And so I have absolutely loved seeing a lot of this. Um, the creepypastas, when I when we created Blumhouse.com a couple of years ago, that was the one thing that I was like, we have to include creepypastas. And it was by far the most successful section of the site, <laughs> um, by far. Um, just the amount of people that would turn out for those creepypastas, like millions of hits when we'd post them within days. Um, and we weren't doing anything. We were just curating them from other areas of the internet and trying to pull all of the different versions versions of the stories together, but just um, absolutely fascinating stuff. And some of the stories that I read on there, I was really impressed because most of them pull from media. Not all of them, but a lot of them pull media and use technology. So even though they are using tropes from horror and ghost stories that we've been seeing for literally like since the dawn of storytelling, um, the fact that they're kind of rooted in this contemporary environment, I love. Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting is that, so I think humans understand our lives through narrative, right? Like, we only, we understand things in story form. So things like creepypasta, I think we're literally working through things. Mm -hmm. And we're working through them as a community and as a culture. I mean, 
Um, I always t- think back to, you know, Dawn of the Dead, right? That is a movie actually about consumerism. Mm-hmm, like, that's completely. what that is about, right? And and so, like, these, I think maybe it's hard to see what some of these are right now, but I do think in 10, 15 years, we will look back and go, oh, that creepypasta was because we were all dealing with, like, stupid Trump or whatever, whatever the thing is that we're dealing with. Yeah. I think that one of the things that creepypastas have really done is shown that there are female horror fans out there. Um, during... Phoenix Comic Con last year, I attended a panel on creepypastas. Hope it was hosted by this guy named Mr. Creepypasta, who has a web show specifically dedicated to creepypastas. And there were literally like 2,000 people there. And I do have to say, it was a large chunk women. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there is a huge amount of women reading these. Are women still being placed in peril in the stories? Yes, of course. Because women are traditionally in society viewed as more weak and meek and timid. Um, so they would uh, traditionally be viewed as easier prey, which is why they tend to fall victim in horror films. So we're still seeing that. But we're also seeing ones that are kind of gender neutral. Um, so we're seeing a good mix in there. And I definitely think that creepypasta are helping to really um, diversify out the the audience. It's not a men's genre. It's everyone's. It's funny when I when I hear about creepy pasta, I feel like I mostly hear about it as a teen girl sort of thing. But maybe that's just just because of the Slenderman story. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Like, because I think of it, and maybe I think of like it's it's teen girls that are reacting to it or something, or definitely internalizing it or something. I definitely think that teen girls are a large chunk of the audience for these. Like, even when I was at the panel, that mm-hmm. was you know, largely made it up. Hmm. Under 20 and a over 50% were female. Hmm. Um, and that's not to say that just from this one panel that that dictates, the, you know, the whole viewing audiences for creepypasta. But I definitely think that there is a very diversified gender um, for who is reading and consuming these. Grantland alumni Molly Lambert, Tess Lynch, and Emily Ishida bring you a weekly podcast to keep you company during those lonely days and strange nights. Night Call is kind of like the meeting place between alien documentaries and Frasier. So if you have a conspiracy theory that you just can't crack or someone you know has ever had an encounter with a haunted cat, drop them a line with your Night Call at 24046NIGHT and they'll offer up some of the best advice on life and love and, you know, the coming apocalypse. Night Call is available now on Apple Podcasts and all other listening destinations i mean the night the thing about the internet is which sounds such a whatever but the thing about the internet is that it, it has allowed us used to when you wanted to watch a horror movie you wanted to talk to people about horror movies you had to go to a video store mm-hmm. or you had to go to a theater and now you can literally go on your computer and like if you want to be a fan of horror if you want to be a fan of these things it's right there. Like, the world is literally at your fingertips. And that has been a beautiful thing for pushing women into horror. Um, when I was in college, I remember going to horror discussion boards because, same thing, I was from a real small town. Even my college, you know, there was not – I didn't have horror fan friends. I was kind of by myself in that. Um, and they used to not make fun of me, but I was always the horror girl, mm-hmm. um, the one who was, like, going to be their opening weekend. And I didn't always have anybody with me on that. <laughs> but when – Um, I was in college in the late 90s and early 2000s. There were message boards that I used to go to, and it was kind of the first time that I'd actually had conversations with other people who had seen Argento movies, and not just the big ones, like the weird ones, too. Or, um, you know, oh, Coffin Joe, that's not one that you're going to encounter a lot. But I suddenly found people who had seen that and could discuss the films with me. But when um, I got to Fangoria in my early 20s, I remember the day that I got an email from this girl named Hannah Neurotica. 
And Hannah told me that she had a zine because that was still like a big thing at the time, um, which is where you make like your own Xerox oh, magazine. Oh, I, I had a zine distro. Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I love zines. And so Hannah emailed me um, because I was the only, at the time, I was the only full-time female working at Fangoria besides the secretary, who was wonderful. Um, but I was basically um, within like the writing division, one of the only ones there. I think we may have had one other who was working in the television department at the time. Um, and she emailed me and she was like, I found you on the website. Um, I have a zine called The Axe Wound. It's entirely dedicated to women in horror. And I really want to turn this into a larger thing. Can we talk? And um, I was like, oh, my God. Like at the time, women in horror, it was the very first time I had ever heard that term. And this is probably 2006, 2007. And um, I remember having a phone conversation with Hannah. And then we emailed back and forth a bunch. And she told me that she was going to try to have a month, a women in horror month. And that she really wanted to kind of blow it up and turn this into an internet thing. And immediately, that very first year that she did it, it was amazing the amount of people that I found online. And it was the very first time that we'd ever kind of had a women in horror thing. And at the same time, um, even though that it was this beautiful celebratory, like, holy crap, there's more than just a couple of us. We're like a big chunk. Um, there was immediate a huge backlash from guys about women don't belong in horror. So we got a whole bunch of the like women don't belong in horror trolls. And then we also got a huge amount of why the hell do they need their own month? You know, if you're a fan, just be a fan. You don't need anything. We don't need to be loud about it. Um, So there was immediately this huge backlash. But what it did was it immediately gave me this kind of group that made it okay for me to be a horror fan. Mm -hmm. And then immediately, um, Hannah and a lot of the other people who became really pivotal in it started getting letters from people who were like, I'm a horror fan. I'm a female. I live in the middle of nowhere. Everyone's always told me I'm weird or a Satanist or a death lover or whatever (laughs) other term they want to apply to you. Um, And it was so nice to see that there are other females in this. And so it really did. And I mean, that was like, you know, 15 years ago now. And over this time to see what it has transitioned into and how much agency it's given to women to be horror fans um, and how, you know, it's definitely created an online community. It's just been a beautiful thing to watch. It's so interesting that you say that you're surprised to find women in horror considering who is on the poster of every horror movie. It's a woman. Which is... Why I think what you're saying, too, is why visibility is so important for women behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I think when I moved to L.A., I I knew I wanted to do something in genre. I thought maybe I wanted to be a producer, but I literally couldn't point to a woman doing what I wanted to do. But I could point to a lot of women whose faces were on the posters of things that I liked. So it seemed like that was my direction. Like, it was like, I'll just just lean that way because I know that, like, that's a way I can work in the thing that I want to be doing because I can see that woman's face and she looks looks a little bit like me and like maybe that's what I can do which is why it's so important for women and people of color who are making genre movies to be very visible and vocal and it it sucks because it means you have to constantly be like the person who's like speaking up for everyone mm-hmm. but I do think that it's really important that we're all being like yes me over here I also make movies like yes. I also make these movies uh, which we're all doing now but I think it's definitely been in the last few years that we've seen even more of it Oh, yeah. Which is such a positive thing. And I think that that's how we encourage diversity in the future Mm -hmm. is making it a very public thing of, you know, look who is directing movies. When I was a film student, um, and again, this is 
like late 90s, early 2000s, I think in my entire film career in classrooms, I watched one film directed by a female, and it was a Maya Darren film. Um, Maya Darren being this really experimental female filmmaker from the 1940s, she went on to really inspire David Lynch. Um, just makes this weird-ass stuff that I absolutely fell in love with. But she was basically the only one. And it wasn't until later that I discovered people like Antonia Bird or Jackie Kong, um, females who had been working within this genre. And I think that that's the best way that we can encourage diversity in the future is to apply diversity now so that people have someone to look at, to Mm -hmm. work towards. We want more African-American filmmakers. Hire one now. Mm -hmm. Don't try to look to the next generation. Get some in there now. And that's Mm -hmm. the best way to do it. If there's a female role model for people to be working towards, then females are going to gravitate towards that area. A hundred percent. So I've, I don't know how many movies I've done or TV shows I've made, but I will tell you I've worked with three female directors in film. You're one of them. The feature film that I literally just wrapped 48 hours ago, Carolyn Williams was in it from Texas Chainsaw Massacre Mm. 2 and a huge horror legend. Um, And when Caroline arrived to set on the first day, she came up to me and she goes, I want you to know that I've been acting for 35 years now and you are the second female director I've had Mm. in 35 years. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. That is terrible. If you look at Carolyn's IMDb, literally hundreds of projects. Yes. Two female directors in all of that. It's terrible odds. And so, yeah, we need to change the way that that's going. We need to change the path that it's been on. And I do have to say, Hollywood is making some big strides. I now see studios actively seeking out diversity, actively seeking out voices that are previously not heard very much. So um, I'm hoping it continues. I'm hoping that it's not just like a spark in the dark of them suddenly going, holy crap, we need diversity and that it's going to get dropped off in a couple of years. So I'm hoping it continues on this path and only swells and grows. I do think there is I, I the screen. Is there a word that we're using for this? The like unfriended. It's like a screen horror movie. Well, who the fuck is Billy? I told you I didn't post those photos, Val. Guys, who is this? I don't know. Is this here the whole time? Ken, you said it was just a glitch. Well, the glitch just typed. Oh my god, I loved Unfriended. I think it was incredible. Yeah. It was an amazing movie, and also I found it very addicting in the same way I find my computer addicting, where I wanted to watch it because, mm-hmm. you know, you the computers and these things are made for us, so we, mm-hmm. we can, like, do five thing, billion things at the same time, which is so addicting for me. I love a multitasking. Like, I mean, oh as my I God, think all yeah. of us do. So we can play music and go and talk to our friends and also be on Facebook and all these things. And I felt like it mimicked that in a way that the movie was addicting. Yeah. Um, and I think those movies... I mean, we may look back in 10 years and be like, wow, that was a weird time that we made those. But I actually think no. I think they're going to become more and more common that we're going to see movies that are using uh, screens and technology. And we're going to start seeing movies through screens because that is how we're living our lives now. We are living 90 percent of my life takes place on my computer screen at this point. You know, like I'm my face to face interactions are so limited and there's so many things that are taking place through, you know, whether it's Facebook or Slack or email or, you know, all these different things that we're using now. And I feel like that is that's that's that sort of is the future at this moment for me. And I do have to say that um, I when 
I, I will admit that when Unfriended first got announced, I made fun of it on the podcast that I host. I kept calling it Facebook the movie, and this I was is, like, oh, this is going to be great. This is the problem with the podcast um, is that stuff is just, it's it's now part of history. And I know, now so I have Rebecca to give McKendry, the disclaimer. She hates Unfriended. I actually, and I did circle back on myself, and I was like, my God, I really loved so that good. movie. It was so good. I was totally into it the whole time. I was shocked by how riveting it was to watch people just use screens. But then again, I do think that this is where we're headed because I've also been really amused by, um, as we have seen the increase of internet and people living literally 90% of their days on the internet. You're right on that. Um, the amount of stuff I do on the internet now, it's literally the majority of my tasks. Do you think that's because we're alone experiencing this media, so that's the only way it can kill us? Like, I mean, horror movie, the end you know, product is we die, right? That's yep. like sort of, we're dealing with death. Um, and so suicide becomes this outlet for that because we're on these computer screens alone or we're experiencing this media alone. That seems like the filmmaker's only choice there. I think that a lot of it is also us coming to terms with rising emotional problems, mm. um, which has seemed to either become more public or more prevalent um, within the past couple of decades, that we as society tend to feel more isolated now. Um, and so I think that a lot of it is is kind of our own fear and working through that. I also think that we as a society have shifted um, a bit from fear of the other to fear of our own psychological corruption. Hmm. Um, the idea that I'm looking at dark stuff and could it become so dark that it truly affects me. Because mm. um, we dare ourselves to look at stuff yeah. online all the time. And I mean, that's ha- kind of how headlines are shaped now. Look at this crazy bug you've never seen before. Look at this weird video. Um, you know, we, we dare ourselves to watch stuff online all the time. But it's the idea of are we daring ourselves to the point that it will completely change who we are as people. Mm. And um, that, for me, as I've seen, has become one of the prevailing tropes of creepypastas, the idea of kind of a psychological corruption or I have traveled too far into the internet and I can't psychologically go back now. Right, right. Obviously, I would love to see more women in horror in general, directing, crew. I was, um, and you know, talk about us trying to walk the walk. I was really um, concerned on both of um, the features that I've done so far to make sure that I was crewing a, a good chunk women. Um, so not even just, you know, a female director or female-driven films that, you know, I was making sure I had a female camera assistant, a script super and line producer and things like that and trying to make sure that, um, you know, that I am opening up and trying to walk the walk that I've been preaching for decades now. Um, but I, I heard the theory once that we will truly see diversity in horror when we have female killers too because females are always the victims in horror films but if we have a female killer it's the crazy bitch scenario which we were just talking about urban legend right urban legend the um she was wrong she went nuts she's always hysterically psycho and then that's what you get or she's carrie um where you know just crazy bitch and so the idea that you could have um a normal female who is driven to this or has to do this out of necessity. And we've seen that a little bit, but usually it's in a monstrous way. Um, Let's talk about popular scripts. I will say about starting about two or three years ago, I was probably handed three or four female slasher movies within like a very short span of time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was, it was a little bit of sort of the precursor to like the Me Too, like that people were like feeling this sort of, that, that women were were taking on new roles. Mm-hmm. You know, like women were were speaking up for themselves. And so um, I think, um, I think, 
all of them were written by men. But and some of them were quite good, and some yeah. of them were pretty weak. But um, but I I feel like that was a something that I was like, oh, this is gonna be a trope in like three years. Yeah. And then I haven't seen any of them get made. No. And I three years ago said that there was gonna be a rise in the monstrous feminine, the idea that the female is you know, becoming so enraged, something like teeth, mm. um, where the female has been pushed around so much that she ultimately kind of transforms into this monster and in a way becomes rather ethereal in that regard that she might be killing um, for revenge, but that there is kind of this ethereal, I have evolved beyond you element to it. Mm-hmm. And I've yet to see any of those get made. You so know, I'm I still waiting. Seen, I've seen a couple and uh, actually uh, there's this movie called Blew My Mind that's going mm-hmm. to the festival circuit right now and it's about a girl who transforms into a giant fish and but it's it is oh my god that is so my jam it, oh you would actually you would love it it's very like beautiful indie but it is she has been wronged and like yeah it is beautiful and i feel like i saw another movie in the festival circuit also with that movie y'all go watch that movie it oh is my great gosh. i loved it that's awesome. it truly blew my mind and that was the name of it it's funny i wonder if with these tech movies that people because of women not being not being thought of in tech if people are reaching out to women to be behind the camera in mm-hmm. these tech movies are they reaching out to them for the VFX if they're reaching out for, to them for the story creation I have no idea I haven't been involved in one of these movies at all um, but I think putting women behind the camera in, especially in the creation of these stories mm-hmm. and putting people of color in those roles you're going to end up when you put people in those roles, you're going to end up with more diverse movies. You're going to end up with more interesting stories, with different kinds of stories, and you're going to end up with stories in which you know, women aren't necessarily just going to be 100% the victim. They're going to have some sort of agency. I, without fail, as a woman, you you just don't write these flat characters as much. You know, like you think about them more and you're like, oh, she would have. She would have a family. What What is her job? I also think um, that seeing more women in tech and STEM fields in general will help push this along. Um, because, I mean, if we look back to, like, the 80s when I was a kid and the people that they were putting up as, like, these are the folks creating computers. They were all dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not until much later that I even thought about females as programmers. And now, I mean, my daughter's in elementary school and they have a coding club at her school that is almost all girls. Wow. And so I love that. I love that I'm seeing more um, females. And I don't even know what coding is. Now I suddenly feel really old. Um, <laughs> that my six-year-old knows more than I do here. Um, But, you know, I love that they are pushing more females into these STEM fields and that thinking of just the scientists that I know who I'm close friends with, that, you know, there are just as many females as males. Um, And so I think that the more we see females, you know, emerge as heroes within these tech films that are tech fields, that that will be echoed in films as well. Yeah, and circling back just to the, about the Instagram conversation, as a woman, I can tell you about the horrors of Instagram. Oh, my God, <laughs> yes. I, I will talk to you about the horrors of Instagram. I can show you, open my DMs for you right now and show you the money I get offered to do various things. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like I can write a story about that. Call me. I, like, I feel like there's so, like, women have this sort of unique uh, view into what it is like to be a woman on the Internet, and which is a much more dangerous place, I mean, than being um, a man on the Internet. And I'm... You know, maybe statistics are going to prove me wrong on that, but I just don't hear my male friends being concerned about being killed by someone from the Internet as much as I feel like the threats have been fronting my female friends. Do you know how many penis pics I have gotten from unsolicited people? (laughs) I couldn't even count them on my hands. And that's sad. Right. And we laugh about it because, like, there is almost no other option. No, no. I mean, it is horrifying. You've literally sent me a picture of your penis. All I can do is giggle here at this point. Thank you, Rebecca and Bria, for this illuminating episode. 
I have to admit that until we recorded this interview, I had never even heard the term tech horror. I've got a lot of catching up to do. I'm Adrienne Barbeau, and this has been She Kills, a Shudder original podcast, executive produced by Blair Bercy, Killian Van Rensler, Jordana Freyberg, and Deborah Henderson, hosted by Adrienne Barbeau, associate produced by Nancy Himmel, supervising producer Cara Frias, featuring interviews with Bria Grant and Rebecca McKendry, sound recording, design, and mixing by Iceman Audio, Production sound mixing and re-recording mixing by Evan Menick. Supervising sound editing and re-recording mixing by Michael Capuano. Composed by Doug Bossy. Music by I Spy Music. Production manager, Kay Tinder. Production legal, Jordan Rock. Production accounting, Stephen D. Smith. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Robin Jones, and Nicholas Lazo. She Kills. The characters and events depicted in this podcast are fictional. Any similarity to any actual person living or dead, or to any actual events, firms, places, and institutions, or other entities, is coincidental and unintentional. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America. She Kills. Copyright 2018. Digital Store, LLC. All rights reserved.